Alright, uh, let's try to wait out my wife. We're gonna go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Good Baptist Church. Uh, we have a <clears throat> very long list of announcements. AJ has one. Are you just reminding me? Okay, we're having a baby. <laughs> That's one announcement. So we're excited about that. Um, that is happening in August. More announcements. February 3rd and 4th. It feels weird to just move on from that. Um, February 3rd and 4th is the Abide Women's Conference at NBTS. So if you have any interest in this, it tends to be a very large event. You might want to go just to be encouraged by all the other women in our area and our region seeking to follow Christ. Um, that is February 3rd and 4th at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, March 13th. Any and all children's volunteers especially. March 13th, uh, the Nova Spring Meeting this year is on safe ministry, um, trying to prevent abuse from happening within churches, but then also caring well for anyone who's been through any experience like that. So um, I hope y'all will come out to that. That's going to be a very helpful thing for us um, and for all the churches in our region, I think. So come join us March 13th. By the way, free dinner. I mean, come on. Um you will get a certification from that as well. Uh, small groups, Tuesday, Wednesday night this week. Um, Fridays are up and running again post-Christmas, so if uh, you are in need of anything like a shower or clothes or food, uh, you're welcome to come join us on Friday, and you would be able to get those things. Also, if you want to volunteer, come talk to me. Phil's not here this week. Uh, normally, you can talk to Phil about it. Um, Inward and Baptist Friendship House. So we are working more and more together with our partners um, as we try to cooperate on various things we're doing. So if you want to hear more about Inward Ministries, to uh, it's an all-female ministry to uh, the clubs on Bourbon Street and dancers there. If you want to talk more about that and how you can be involved, come talk to me. Uh, the Baptist Friendship House, a ministry primarily targeted at uh, preventing human trafficking in our area, uh, which is very unfortunately a huge problem here. Um, we are able to take part in that ministry as well. Still more to announce. There's a lot going on. Um, disaster Relief Training, February 4th at Vintage Church. If you want to take part in helping the area recover from what is inevitable in our region, uh, hurricanes and tornadoes now, I guess, apparently. Um, so you can come take part in that and be prepared to respond. June 9th and 10th, um, there is something called Serve Tour. Uh, right preceding the Southern Baptist Convention, which early estimates on the SBC in New Orleans are that it's going to be about 20,000 people in town. Uh, and we need about 600 volunteers to help accommodate that. So if you want to volunteer, you can volunteer as a greeter, you can take part in the serve tour. Uh, we're going to be working with Crossroads Ministry here in town to do a respite event for foster parents, where they can then go and get a lunch out in the quarter. Um, and on, on us. And so if you want to help in any kind of way with that, you can come talk to me about that. Uh, the reason I'm announcing something from June now <coughs> is that now is the time to sign up to volunteer. Um, lastly, next weekend, Harvest Church, which is our nearest geographical neighbor <coughs> church within our denomination, uh, they are hosting a conversation on race. Uh, in America, and I deeply trust them to do that in a very good, uh, very respectful way. Um, <clears throat> and so, I'm not going to make it through my sermon at all today. If you want to come take part in that, that is, uh, that's happening next weekend. How about regular ministry? But, um, so prayer requests that we're praying for. There's a lot of people, if you've noticed, a lot of people are out with sickness. So, um, Mama Rose is out, John is out, um, and uh, many others I'm noticing as well. So, please, uh, Eris and, and Terena are out this morning. And so, please be in prayer for any and all who are sick this morning. Um, let me pray for us, and we can get started. On to more important things. Father God, I thank you for a chance to come and worship you this morning. God, I pray that you would allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord. Um, God, you'd be with us this morning. 
we know that you're always with us and that you'll never leave us till the end of the age, God. But we would pray for changed hearts and minds, God, that we would meet you here this morning, that we would not leave the same. Um, God, like on the road to Emmaus, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to recognize you all around us, even when we don't see you working and teaching us. <clears throat> God, and I pray for the liturgy and the worship this morning. Um, God, that your truth would be sung and spoken, that we'd be able to move in it. God, and learn to love you in new ways. And we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Happy third Sunday in this season of Epiphany. Um, we're going to take a few moments to read and listen to God's word together and to respond together in prayer. And before we do, I need to issue a retraction from last week's liturgy. Uh, when I finished, Adam pointed out to me that it was not Isaiah who spoke peace to us heathen. It was Zechariah. Adam says that just because I want everything in the Bible to be in Isaiah Amen. doesn't make it true. I'm not willing to concede that at this point. Um, but I do want to give Zechariah his due and Adam for knowing his minor prophets. <laughs> so... This morning, um, our gospel reading, once again, sort of builds on the reading from the week before. So last week we saw Jesus at the beginning of his ministry um, starting to call his disciples. And it's right after our first epiphany reading where um, he's baptized and it's this, you know, what we call in church circles this mountaintop moment, like this huge closeness to God this really powerful experience where God spoke and the Spirit descended and people began to follow Jesus as we saw. And then our reading this week starts with a pretty brief sentence that you might miss, but it's really important. It starts when Jesus heard that John had been arrested. And everything that happens after that follows from this. We go from this huge moment of great triumphant ministry founding to Jesus's cousin, his friend, the one whose disciples came and joined him, has been arrested. And we see Jesus in our reading this morning, in the aftermath of that, continuing to go and to preach. In fact, to preach the very words that we heard John preach last week in our reading. And once again, we see him calling disciples. And unlike the disciples we saw him call last week, these aren't people who are already disciples of a religious leader. These aren't people who are already dedicating their time to follow God and to seek change for Israel and to repent. These are people who are going about their daily labor, that are living their lives, that are fishing, and God calls, Jesus calls them too. And they too come and follow. In this season of Epiphany, we talk a lot about the light of God coming into the whole world and the sense of coming to all of the peoples, to every, every culture, every language, every tribe, every tongue. But we see in our passage today that God's call and his light also comes to us in every situation of our lives, in big, dramatic, religious moments, and in times of pain and sorrow and suffering and seeming failure to seminary students and to day laborers in every situation that we're in god is with us and he is calling us to come he's revealing himself to us and he has a path for us to follow in every place that we are if we hear his voice our psalm reading that we're going to start with is one of my favorites the lord is my light and my salvation the lord is the strength of my life and i will not be afraid and putting that together with our gospel reading, which starts with John being arrested. And we know if we're thinking through the story of the gospel that all of these disciples 
that Jesus is calling are going to be arrested. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to suffer. So this light and this salvation that takes away our fear is not some magical protection where we will never suffer and we will always be comfortable and therefore we don't have to be afraid. It's that our salvation doesn't come from our comfort or from our safety, from our acceptance, from our success. Our salvation comes from God and none of those other things can take it away. Because we, God is our salvation, we don't have to be afraid, even in those times of suffering and danger and sorrow and pain, because God is still with us. He has a path for us, and he is calling us. So, Stefan, could you read our song for us this morning? Uh, it's getting more comfortable. Yes, sir. I got it. 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 Right here. Yeah. I'm ready from the book of David to, to the sun. Lord of my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? One thing I ask of the Lord that I'll seek out to live in the house of the Lord that I will seek out. To live in the house of the Lord all day of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in the temple. For he will hide me in self Thank <laughs> you. 
and their fathers and followed him. Jesus went to our grandmother, teaching in their synagogue, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness of the people. Amen. Please pray with us. God, God of our salvation, you have shined your light into every corner of our lives, our triumphs and our tragedies, our duties and our desires, our lofty ambitions and our practical needs. In every moment you are with us, in every moment you bid us come, follow me. But we are held back by so many things, our fear and pain, our love of peace, our, our need for control, control our, our lack of belief. belief. We, we seek after our own well-being and the well-being of those we love, as if it could ever be found anywhere but in you. Forgive us, O oh Lord, and set us free, that we may see you in your beauty and join in the work of the kingdom ever near. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. The Lord is our light and our salvation. The Lord is the strength of our life. Through him you are forgiven, you are welcomed, you are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord. Let us behold the beauty of our God and seek him in his holy temple. God, God of blazing light, through the power of the cross, you shattered our darkness, scattering the fears that bind us and setting us free to live as your children. Give us courage and conviction that we may joyfully turn and follow you into new adventures of faithful service, led by the light that shines through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's join together in praise this morning with everyone who is praising throughout the churches. Um, and stand if you're able.
is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone is solid ground, firm through the fiercest round and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving.
kiddos go upstairs if you would turn me turn with me to the book of Luke and we're going to be reading a, a brief section in chapter 24 that's honestly it's mostly about Jesus eating fish um, naturally as a New Orleanian I put great stock and draw great meaning from the eating of fish uh, so that's basically what the whole sermon's going to be about and uh, I think basically only the visitors will be surprised by this this morning um, Meg will you I just realized I didn't bring my Bible up here, and I don't know where it is. Will you grab me a Bible? <laughs> Thank you. Um, we are in the middle of a series of sermons on what it means to be a Christian. Um, this has been something the Lord has been teaching me through these past three years as your pastor. And this is my attempt at giving it back to you in my halting, fish-eating sort of way. Uh, Thank you so much. She even turned it to the right passage. Look at that. Bible drills. Yes. You get a gold star. Um, coming up, my church talked a lot about not looking like the world, which is really good biblical advice. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I did well in high school not falling into the common vices of my peers, but as many people do, when I got to college, I became a Presbyterian. Thank you. I was like, somebody should really laugh at that joke, or else it's going to sound wrong. I started to know some Christians, passionate followers of Christ, who did not look or act like I did. And I began asking myself the same question I've already posed to you. What does it really mean to be a Christian? I know what Christians believe together, but what is it that we're meant to be doing together? And C.S. Lewis helped me to phrase my question a little better. What does mere Christianity look like? And how does mere Christianity different from, quote, the world? What really are the patterns of this world? And I realized, shocked, that asking that question, I look far more like the world than I thought I did. 
It's gonna be gross for like five seconds and you'll get through it and it's gonna make a good point, I promise. <laughs> Did you know that the FDA has a handbook about how many insect parts are acceptable in various foods? It's online um, and it's shocking. I mostly eat red beans and rice for my diet. So I looked up how many insects are allowed in red beans before they start pulling them off the shelves and it's 5%. No. Yes, no. not five. Five percent. Um, so until five percent of the beans are infested, they can just bag them and ship them. Yeah, um, that's the gross part. My point is this: that we imbibe a lot of things that we don't mean to, that we never intended to, and that if we really thought about it, we'd probably find them detestable. Insects, yes, unfortunately, but also ideas, patterns of this world. They make their way into our mouths and into our minds just in our everyday consumptions. Eating red beans, scrolling social feeds, reading books. My point is a lot of Christians, a lot of churches end up looking a lot like the world just in what we consume. The same divisions, the same rhetoric, the same family relationships, the same ethics. It began to bother me how worldly I had become, and I'll stop putting it in past tense. It begins to bother me how worldly I have become. And my hope is that Christ will make me more like him. So how do we as Christians pattern our lives after Christ instead of being conformed to the patterns of this world? What makes a life lived in Christ different from life in general? We talked about baptism in the first sermon in this series, how the Christian baptism inaugurated by John and made holy by Christ's participation, and it was set apart because it was a baptism of repentance. It's meant to be the inauguration in a Christian's life of a life lived in repentance. Every other ritual washing was done in pursuit of cleanliness and holiness, but the baptism of John was an admission of guilt. The world wants to tell you that you are a good person. Christianity speaks a different word. And in being baptized, we tell the truth not often spoken out loud or in public. We admit that we are sinners in need of grace. And while admitting the gospel, while also admitting the gospel, that we sinners are loved and accepted more than we could bear to dream possible. So we talked about baptism, and then we've also talked about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a uniquely Christian concept. Even among other faiths of the world, we worship in Christianity a God who forgives our sins and mistakes when he adopts us into the family of God, the church. We don't have to atone in any way for them. If you have never, in astonishment, asked the question Paul asks in Romans to paraphrase, why would we even change the way we're living our lives if God is just going to forgive everything we do anyway? If you've never asked that question of Christianity, you are not understanding the depths of the forgiveness of God, the scandal of what forgiveness means as opposed to atonement. And then, even more scandalously, God asks us to forgive people around us in the same way. So Christians are meant to be people who confess our own sinfulness, the depth of our own depravity, and yet understand that we are loved, forgiven, and adopted by God. We are both wretched and beloved at once. And we are people who forgive and are forgiven. Today we're going to talk about how Christians are people who fast and who feast. And how it's Christ-like to eat fish. That's mainly what I'm talking about. Read with me. Uh, we are in Luke 24, starting in verse 36. As they, the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still dis disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it 
and he ate before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me briefly. Father God, I am distracted today. God, I, I pray that whatever comes out of my mouth, Lord, that you would teach everyone gathered here to hear from you your truth in your word today. Lord, because we know your truth will set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. We know you hear us. Amen. This is a passage that typically we would pass over or combine with something else in our day and age. It doesn't mean much to us because we're much more interested in the next passage about being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, which, amen. But um, this week, I want us to understand Jesus eating fish and why his disciples are so astonished and marveled at this. People marvel at things they could never have imagined without it being placed in front of them. Think of the first time you saw a mountain or the ocean or looked up at the heavens and realized just how small you are. Every time I'm reminded of how vast and how ancient the creation is, I marvel like the disciples marvel here in our passage. And I remember how small and brief my life is. And yet the creator of the universe wants to hear about my day. My heart sings with the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of him? But the disciples marvel at the risen Christ and at his eating fish specifically. And I think I'm beginning to understand why. This moment shattered everything they thought they knew about spirituality and about religion and life everlasting. I love the honesty of verse 41, when they admit that even with the resurrected Christ right in front of them, even him standing there saying, come touch me, still they admit they didn't believe it. And this moment is a good example of something which sets Christianity and living as a Christian apart from everything else we've known. You see, most religions or worldviews or lifestyles really go one of two ways. Either you fast or you feast. Meaning either you're focused entirely upon spiritual life and you deny things of the flesh. Think, uh, think the emphasis in many Eastern religions of denying desire and suffering, mind over matter, enlightenment. So either that or you're focused entirely on the things of the flesh and utterly reject any spiritual world. We're probably most familiar with Western atheism and humanism. Either the religion is earthy and focused on the material, or it's ethereal and it's focused on things we can't see. Christianity, though, is a really strange mix of both. And at the same time, I've studied religion and mythology for a long time now, and I have honestly never seen anything like this. Being Christian means affirming both the material and the spiritual and at the same time. Not just affirming their existence, but affirming their holiness. The weightiness of the material and the spiritual. And it has everything to do with the central event of our faith, which is the Incarnation. Chris Armstrong says it this way, and this is what I've been learning. He says, creation and incarnation are not rote doctrines to be learned and committed to memory and ignored in our daily practice, but rather they are practical linchpins of what it means to live a good human life in light of the gospel, end quote. Christianity brings the spiritual crashing through and into and gloriously within and around the material. Our God became flesh and is eternally incarnate. Jesus returns miraculously from the dead, and to everyone's shock and awe and wonderment, he is not a spirit, but he's still fleshy. He walks through a wall to meet his friends, but then he sits down and eats a meal. This has radical implications for our faith and for our lives. Expel from your minds the idea of spirits on clouds in heaven being your afterlife and needing to be good enough to climb up the celestial stair to reach up to the heavens. Heaven is coming to earth, to remade and restored earth, to the birds and the trees and the dirt and everything in it. It's a scandal, but it's also true. It's true, but rarely do I meet people who fully believe it. Enough that they're this uniquely Christian truth, that God became flesh, 
has worked its way in and through our actual practice of Christianity in our lives. In our culture, we don't have to look very far to see the opposite of incarnation, which is the segregation of the spiritual and the physical. I think of sex, an act which the Bible treats as the joining of lives and souls, and we convince ourselves over and over again that we can make it merely a physical or an emotional act without weighing it down with spiritual implications. I also think of the ways in which we treat the earth, which God desires to restore and which will be everlasting. The ways we treat and talk about our bodies, which God crafted delicately and beautifully, and which he loves and which he will raise again. The way we treat people, people who exist everlastingly and are precious to our Father. There's a trope in our movies and TV shows of the brilliant scientific mind, usually an atheist, who's able to see through all of the spiritual and mysterious mumbo-jumbo into the truth of what is actually going on, the real. Spiritual people, our society believes, are the ones willing to believe in unseen nonsense and reject this world in order to focus on the spiritual world. And it hasn't quite entered our imaginations yet that the spiritual world might just be behind and breaking through and intermingled with our own, having real implications on the physical. When we do consider that possibility, usually we're terrified of it, as the disciples are in our passage when they think that Jesus has come back as a ghost because he's come back at all. It hadn't yet entered into their imaginations that he might be raised to the dead as a living, breathing, fish-eating person. Early on in my faith, I also leaned heavily towards spiritualism. I thought I was doing well in my faith if I abstained from any and all pleasure. Uh, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, that one was probably for the best in retrospect. Um, but I also didn't rest. My wife will tell you, when we first met, I did not talk to girls. <laughs> um, I shoved my emotions down with a fistful of logical processing and tried to be a person who needed nothing, and yet always somehow had something to give. I would talk theology for hours, but a conversation about raising children or riding horses would have bored me. In church, I would cut enjoyable conversations short in order to get down to what I saw as the real business of studying the Bible. Now that I'm a little older, I hope that I've begun to eat more fish like Jesus and bread and wine. I think I have. I certainly cry more than I used to. I've, I've let emotions enter into my decision-making. I'm working on letting emotions enter my conversations, but I still struggle with that, as Jake can tell you. I've had many conversations about that. I've certainly talked a lot about raising children at this point in my life, uh, and I rest far more than I used to, if you could possibly believe that. Um, though I still struggle with rest, and that's going to be the topic for our next sermon. My religion, in general, has become far fleshier and far fishier, the older I've gotten. Our God, though, worked with his hands. He never struggled to understand the fleshiness of a life lived in faith. He got angry and made a big scene once, or twice. He died when his friends died, or he cried when his friends died. And he ate fish, a lot of fish. The spiritual folks of Jesus' day called him a glutton, in fact, and a drunkard, and asked him why his disciples didn't wash or fast. He let Mary pour perfume on his feet and wipe it with her hair. When John wrote his gospel account, he started it by saying that the Word, the Spirit, God himself, became flesh and dwelt among us. And I'm sure most of his church members were wildly offended by that idea and could not stand it, and neither can we. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around the ascendant Lord seated at the right hand of the Father, who also calls us his friend and sits and eats our fish, really without asking a whole lot of permission. Um, but the Bible clearly teaches both. Most spiritual leaders in our time go around talking about how heaven is something we reach through meditation or escaping our body, escaping the world entirely. Jesus is walking around telling people the kingdom of God is like a tree or a hen, or a farmer spreading seed, or a young couple getting married. That God isn't rejecting or getting rid of the earth, but the kingdom of God is restoring and dwelling among the earth. This earthiness of our Creator 
radically affects our Christian practice, whether we realize it or not. Most of the ways God has given us to worship him are incredibly like this moment of wonderment in Scripture and of fish eating, the spiritual coming to dwell among the flesh. Jesus tells his followers, if you really want to remember me, eat a meal together. Break bread with friends and drink wine, and in doing so, you'll both proclaim my death and take part in it, and take part in my life. And by inhabiting that meal, God has sanctified every meal that we eat. Everything from roast fish to leftover soup now teaches us about our Savior, how he sustains us day to day, how we long for him, and in communion with him, we are satisfied. For every person we disciple, Jesus tells us we also ought to baptize them in water, bathe them in the river like a centurion, and admit that you're unclean. <clears throat> and he gave us his ministries of caring and healing as two of our central Christian practices. Most spiritual people in Jesus' day wouldn't have touched a sick person with a 10-foot pole or someone bruised and bleeding because it would have rendered them unclean and they would have missed temple that day. And so to be spiritual, they would have avoided them altogether. And here Jesus puts out his hands to beggars and to bleeding women and spits in the earth and puts mud in someone's eyes. Fast forward through the centuries and his followers are caring for victims of plague while the other religious people of the day are looking on in wonder. His followers are founding monasteries and hospitals and welcoming in anyone who would come even if they couldn't pay. He tells us to care for the poor, and churches started the profession of social work so the church could dive into the grit of the earth. He tells us to care for the widow and the orphan, and then he called me personally into foster care, and I'm sitting here changing diapers and wiping noses, realizing that with all of my theological training, this is my pure and undefiled religion. Uh, my spiritual act of worship is not sneezing directly into my mouth uh, before I can put a stop to it. This is what pleases our God after years of study, and this is what God calls me to as my Christian practice, and it's where I spend the majority of my time and energy. In Christianity, you don't have a spiritual life, and a love life, and a thought life, and a family life, and an emotional life. You have a single, undivided life, intermixed and intermingled for all of your days. And Christianity claims every part of it, even into eternity. There is no aspect of your life that God does not enter into and dwell and make holy. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Word become flesh. And if we follow after him, we have to do the same. Our faith can't be lived out through our thought or through our words. It's useless to know about Christianity and yet not practice it in the flesh. You cannot make peace on Facebook. You have to make peace with your neighbor. And you can't confess your sins without baptizing your body. You can't do justice in a conversation. You have to spend time with the oppressed. God became flesh. And if you want to serve him, you have to use you have to serve him with your mind, body, soul, and strength. I would invite you this morning into an embodied kind of faith. Whatever you do, Scripture tells, whether you eat or you drink, do everything to the glory of God our Father. If your heart is moved this morning, maybe you should think about moving your body in worship of God. Stand and sing or get down on your knees and pray. Consider it a first step. Or maybe you should invite your friend to lunch and recognize that those moments, too, are holy. As Christians, we fast and we feast and we live out our faith in our bodies. I would invite you in every way to seek to live a life like our incarnated Savior. And let's seek him together this morning. Pray with me. Father God, I'll admit to you this morning that I struggled to speak about this topic, Lord, because it is so vast and contains multitudes. God, every time I speak about it, I feel like I'm contradicting myself, but Lord, it's just because you are so big. 
in this moment in which you became flesh is so large. God, that it nearly baffles understanding. God, I pray that you and your spirit would speak mysteries to us. God, that you would search, Holy Spirit, that you would search the mind of God and minister it to us this morning. God, that we would be marveled at your wonder. God, and in joy that we could almost not believe it, even if it's standing right in front of us. God, I pray that you would teach us to live our lives not just believing in you, God, but living as you did. Forever incarnate, Lord, we pray this in your name, so we know you hear us. Amen.